we may be few, but we're true to our motto. We are a small church with a big heart. Amen. I missed you guys. So I was on the West Coast last week. Um, I conducted a seminar on how to read, study, and preach on the Old Testament narratives. And I also spoke to a church there uh, in Sacramento, and it was a blessing. And while I considered it a blessing, I also considered it also a blessing to test my faith because on the way back, uh, there was a big turbulence on the plane. And I'm telling you, this is, this is special. This one has uh, led some of the people curse on the plane. So, so on my way back from Las Vegas to here, I was seated beside a Hispanic couple. They were talking in Hispanic, so I can, I can um, detect the, you know, the language. But the moment we hit the sky and we felt the first turbulence, they started cursing. And when they cursed, they started cursing with gusto. <laughs> I mean, it was so, it was so strong that, that even the luggages uh, came tumbling and fell on our heads. That, that strong. And so everyone was, you know, was panicking on the plane. The children were crying. The people are, are you know, maybe calling all the saints in the world. And, and we are in panic. And so I was thinking at that time, it was also a way to test my faith. And, and at that time, I was reading a book about the kingdom of God and spiritual warfare. <laughs> what a coincidence. And I can say that God has tested my faith. Um, there was a time when, when the plane dropped about 10 feet, and then it shook, and then stabilized, and then again. It was really, it was really that bad. But then I, I, was, I was grateful, and I'm glad that I'm back here with my family. I didn't tell my wife immediately because I didn't want her to panic, but... You know, this is one of the things that we can say. God helps us to go through the process so that we can understand better how we, our faith can, you know, get strong in God. And I, and I pray that as you take your vacations this summer, you would experience the blessings of God. Not the turbulence, but the blessings of God in there. So I would say that it's literally good to be back here. Now, speaking of the kingdom of God, we are in a new series. It's called A King in Exile. Um, it's exiled because at this point, from chapters 13 onwards, David will be in exile. So it's all about exile. Now, but why do we have to know this? But why do we have to know about David being in exile? Here's a quick question. Or, sorry, here's a quick answer. If we are serious about the kingdom of God, if we are serious about God, then we have to learn everything about God and His kingdom. We have to learn everything about God's will and God's purposes, and God's plan. Think about it this way. If you're an ISIS soldier, every day you wake up, you think about, what am I going to do to advance the caliphate? Right? Before you rest at night, you would be thinking the same thing. What can I do tomorrow to advance the caliphate? That's how an ISIS soldier thinks. So think about this. If all Christians would think like this en masse, Early in the morning, when you wake up, when you're drinking your coffee, you think, how am I going to advance the kingdom of God today? And when you retire at night, you would think the same way. How am I going to advance the kingdom of God tomorrow? I think we will do a pretty good damage to the kingdom of the enemy. That is how we advance the kingdom of God. But the question is, why are we not advancing the kingdom of God? Here's the simple answer. Because we are more concerned and we are more preoccupied with building our own kingdom. It's my future, my retirement, my plans, 
my thing. It's my kingdom. It's not God's kingdom. And so if we focus on God's kingdom, I think we will be on the right path. So talking about kingdom, let's talk about this kingdom. A little recap on 1 Samuel. Now I know we've been going through the 1 Samuel, and last week it was 1 Samuel chapter 19. Today is 1 Samuel chapter 20. But what's going on here? Chapter 15, God, God de-anointed Saul. He rejected Saul. Chapter uh, 16, God appointed a new king, David. Chapter 17, David fought Goliath, establishing his new authority as king in Israel. Chapter 18, Saul refused to step down from the throne. Chapter 19, here's what happened. Saul attempted several, several ways to kill David. First, he connived with Jonathan. It failed. Second, he connived with Michal, his daughter. It failed. And third, David escaped, so he organized a group of assassins to hunt down David. And when the group of assassins learned where David was, they went after David, but the Spirit of God overcame them, and they failed. And for the third time, they failed. So Saul said, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to go after David and kill him myself. So he went to Naioth in Ramah. He was overcome by the Spirit, and he also failed. Let me read to you what happened exactly in Ramah. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 23. This is how it says. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped of his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. If you're wondering what this means, you know, there was a time when there's a man in the Bible in the Old Testament that also lay naked all day and all night. If you remember, after the flood, Noah came out of the boat together with his family. The Bible said he planted a vineyard, and he had too much to drink after planting a vineyard. So he lay in his tent naked all day and all night. So the effect to Saul was the same effect to Noah. They were both drunk. The first time, this is interesting, the first time Saul was anointed by the Holy Spirit, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the second time here in chapter 19, the, the Spirit came to him. He felt restless and hopeless. He felt naked. He stripped off his clothes. He was naked and lay devastated on the ground, just like what Noah, what happened to Noah. Now, what does it mean? Let me give you an insight here. What does it mean for Saul to strip off his clothes? And why did he do that? Now, remember there was a battle between David and Goliath. That's chapter 17. And before the battle, Saul was giving David his own armor. He told David, you wear my armor, you fight the, the giant. And David refused. Why? Because David doesn't want the people to know or to think that Saul is the king. David doesn't want the people to see and think that his anointing and his authority is coming from, from Saul. He wants the people to see and think that the battle is the Lord's, that the battle will be won because of the Lord, not because of Saul's armor or his sword. See, if you were an Israelite, and if you're reading this, you would have understood the nuance and symbolism of why Saul stripped off his clothes. 
This is God's way to strip Saul of his kingly robes. He's telling the people publicly that he's no longer king. He was publicly paraded in, all the, in, in public that he doesn't have the anointing of God anymore. This is where you get the famous passage in Psalm 51 that says, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Saul was no longer king. But the question here remains, what will happen to David? Because Saul is king, David is king, there's only one throne, what will happen to David? So in chapter 20, David appeals. This is the question he gave to Jonathan. He said in verse 1, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is the sin before your father that he seeks my life? I mean, David wanted to understand why Saul wanted to kill him. We already know that. Jonathan already understood, understood that. But Jonathan understood as David's best friend and the son of King Saul that the kingdom is Yahweh's kingdom. It was very clear to him. And that David was God's chosen king. If we begin to reflect on this, that the kingdom of God is God's kingdom and not our kingdom, that the church is an extension of God's kingdom, then we will stop fighting against Christians. We will stop fighting amongst each other. We can stop the gossip and the, and the jealousy and all the troubles that we have as a church, and we will advance the kingdom. The reason why we're not advancing the kingdom is because we think like Saul. We think this is about my kingdom. The church is about my turf. This is not yours. This is mine. But to Jonathan, it's very clear this was about God's kingdom. And therefore, there's no reason why we cannot identify with Jonathan. For the next 23 verses, the narrator would establish one single fact. That Israel is Yahweh's kingdom. Not anyone's kingdom. Not Saul. Not David's. It's Yahweh's kingdom. In fact, the story is not about friendship between Jonathan and David, if you might think about it. The story is exactly about whom God chose to manage his kingdom. Jonathan recognized it. Michal, the wife of David, recognized it. The people of Israel recognized it, except for Saul. Saul would not recognize it. But David wanted to make it official. Am I, do I still have a place in the kingdom, or am I going to go to exile? He wants to make it official. So in verse 24, it says, So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. Abner was general. He's protecting the king. But David's place was empty. I mean, he did not come intentionally. But on the second day, after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? All right, what's going on here? David intentionally skipped dinner, skipped having dinner with the king. Why? Because they want to know Saul's true intention. Is he still bent on killing David? They want to know that. So here's what happened next in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, in our modern parlance, this is a, you son of a bee. I cannot say that, of course. But that's what she's trying to say. You son of a perverse, religious, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Here's his reason. 
For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. What's going on in his mind? Because he still believes that Israel is his kingdom and he has the authority to pass it on to Jonathan. It's very clear in here. Therefore, he said, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered this Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? He was simply repeating David's question. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind at this point that Saul was bent on killing David. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that he would not stop on anything but to kill David because his heart is filled with rage and jealousy because he wants to keep the kingdom for himself. He thinks this was his kingdom. question is why? Because Saul thinks that this was his kingdom. Anyone you know who thinks like that in the church? Who thinks and believes that he owns the church? I mean, Saul believes that this is his kingdom. You see, this is a spiritual warfare. This is not just politics. Let me tell you why. In chapter 17, when David fought Goliath, the climax to that is in verse 42 where it says, the battle is the Lord's. In fact, it is the battle of the gods. It's not just the battle between David and Goliath. It's the battle of champions. And they are representing the gods. David was representing Yahweh. Goliath, the giant, was representing Dagon, the Philistine god. So if this is a spiritual battle, where did David get the idea to decapitate the head of Goliath? You see, at the very end, in chapter 17, he swung his sling, he hit the forehead, Goliath fell, he took up the sword and sliced the head. That's what happened. Where did he get the idea? 1 Samuel chapter 5. What happened there? The Israelites went to battle, and they were smart enough to think, maybe let, we should bring the Ark of the Covenant. So they brought the Ark of the Covenant as a lucky charm. They lost. The Ark was captured. It was brought to the Temple of Dagon. On the second day, the people saw Dagon on the floor. Both hands are cut, and the head was decapitated. Dagon looked like a half-man, half-fish. He was a merman. He's the male version of Starbucks. You think about it. If anyone likes Starbucks, you see that mermaid in there. Dagon was the boy version of Starbucks. He's the patron god of the Philistines. And God decapitated him in 1 Samuel chapter 5. That is where David got the idea. Why? Because this, again, is the battle of the gods. Dagon was decapitated in 1 Samuel 5. Goliath was decapitated again in 1 Samuel 17. This all boils down to the truth of the thing that the battle is the Lord's. So think about it. If David is the chosen king to administer the kingdom, anyone who opposes him opposes God. Would you say amen to that? Anyone who opposes David opposes God because David was the chosen king. Remember what, they, what God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And that's the reason why when you read the book of the Exodus, God punished the Egyptians for enslaving the Israelites for 40, 400 years. It's not 40 years, 400 years. God punished the Egyptians because they enslaved the people of Israel 
for 400 years. But here's the thing. The slavery was part of God's plan. How do we know that? Genesis 15, verse 13. It says, And the Lord said to Abram, before he became Abraham, He said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's what happened to the Israelites, 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possession. See, the slavery was part of God's plan, but God will punish the Egyptians for that. It's hard to accept sometimes that suffering can be part of God's plan. Have you ever thought of that? See, <clears throat> suffering doesn't always mean bad. Suffering doesn't always mean God is not in control. Suffering doesn't always mean that God has forgotten you. Suffering doesn't always mean bad. Sometimes suffering can be a way of preservation. Would you say amen to that? That was God's plan for Israel. That was God's plan for Abraham. And he explained it in verse 15. This is what he said. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So good for Abraham. But then they, that means his descendants, will come back here in the fourth generation, that's 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now sidebar, who are the Amorites? What is God trying to say here? God is explaining that the 400 years of slavery in Egypt was God's way of preserving the Israelites so that they will not get mixed up with the Amorites in Canaan. Had the people of Israel stayed in Canaan and multiplied there and mixed with the Amorites, then after 400 years, God will eliminate both the Amorites and the Israelites. So instead, he placed the Israelites to Egypt and let them suffer for a while. God allowed suffering because suffering was God's plan for them so that they will not get mixed up with the sins of the Amorites. Now, who are the Amorites here? I was thinking of a, of a sidebar here, and I'm thinking a comfortable life can sometimes lead the people to forget God. But suffering can be a way of preservation. But then again, who are the Amorites? Why does, did God not want them to get mixed up with the Amorites? I'd like you to focus here, because what I'm about to tell you is not something that you can read every day or hear every day. Now, who exactly are the Amorites? Why is God waiting for their iniquity to reach a certain point? Now, the Amorites are interchangeably used with the inhabitants of Canaan. So when you read the Bible and you, you see Canaanites, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes they're also called Amorites. But in chapter 15 of Genesis, the Amorites is a very special group of people that occupied and ruled the land of God in Canaan. Now, according to, to the Israelites, before they even entered the promised land, Numbers 13, they sent spies, 12 spies. And the 12 spies came back. And the spies said, it's really good. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. All right, good. But there's a problem. There are giants in the land. There are Nephilims and Anakims. The Bible calls them the Amorites. The Amorites are giants. They ruled the land. Here's the thing. If there were only a couple of Amorites or giants, it was easy for them to pursue. But the Bible said the whole nation rebelled against God and did not want to pursue the promised land. Why? Because the land was occupied 
with giants. The giant Amorites ruled the land of Canaan. How do we know that? Centuries later, God will speak to prophet Amos, Amos chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, you might have read this, but you might not be aware. Amos 2, 9 and 10. God said, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, who are the Amorites, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. The land of the Amorite is Canaan. Amorites were the giants who ruled the land in the time of Moses and in the time of Joshua. The last remaining Amorite was a Philistine giant by the name of Goliath, whom David defeated and decapitated. See, the Amorites were the giants who ruled the land. Where did we get this from? Genesis chapter 6. We know this from the recent sermon. The heavenly beings came to earth, took the human form, and intermarried with human beings. It was a rebellion against God. And they produced giants, the Nephilim. Genesis 6 was a rebellion. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve that was deceived by a serpent was another rebellion. Genesis 11 was another rebellion. So if you think, why was God waiting for the Amorites to reach a certain boiling point of their sin so that he would destroy them? Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. God torched the two cities because they reached the boiling point of sin. That is what's happening here when he said to Abraham, I will destroy them. So what David accomplished by defeating Goliath, Saul failed in that. What the people failed to do in Numbers 13, David accomplished by defeating Goliath. See, here's the, here's the thing. The story of David does not end with David. The story of David links to the story of Jesus Christ. And if you're thinking, how is this related to Jesus Christ? Don't you find it weird that Matthew introduced Jesus with a family tree? Now, Pastor King came here last Sunday, and Elder Edwin introduced him, but you know, he did not mention the, the grandfather of the grandfather of the grandfather of Pastor King. He introduced him with you know, credentials. But when Matthew introduced Jesus, he introduced him with the father of the father of the father of the father and the son of the son of the son. He mentioned Abraham all the way to Isaac, to Jacob, the twelve, to Judah, and the rest of the clans. And then, at a certain point in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1, he said this. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. I, I, I should have said the husband of, of Letty, but Mary, okay? <laughs> of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Christ is not a last name, it's a title. It means anointed one. So all the generations, watch this because it's important. All the generations from Abraham to David, 14. David to Babylon, 14. Babylon to Christ, 14. What's the connection between Abraham, David, Babylon, and Christ? Now, disregard the 14. How are these names connected? Abraham, David, Babylon, and Christ. Here's the thing. The defeat of the Amorite giants was first mentioned through Abraham, correct? Genesis 15. The last giant, Amorite, was killed by David, all right? And in Babylon, 
God has finally exiled all the earth's inhabitants by dispersing them through different languages. So here we get the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was short for Babylon. Babylon was in the land of Shinar. Shinar is where the rebellion, another rebellion began. What is the Tower of Babel? I think we have the, the picture in here. This is, this is the known Tower of Babel. It's in Mesopotamia. This tower is a replica of the Garden of Eden. They perform human sacrifices on top of the tower in order to entice God to come down. This is the people's way to reverse the exile of Eden. This is the people's way to invite God in their own kingdom, not God's kingdom. They have built the tower to say, this is our kingdom and we want God to be part of it. This is simply Saul repeating the thing. This is my kingdom. This is not God's kingdom. And so where does Christ fit in all this? Christ, or the figure of Christ, is the ultimate figure who will stop all rebellions and reverse the curse of the Tower of Babel. That's what Christ is for. Now we're thinking, ah, Jesus Christ died on the cross to save my sins so I can go to heaven. Of course, that's just one part of the story. That's not the whole story. Because we have to account for Genesis 3, Garden of Eden, Genesis 6, the intermarriage of heavenly beings and human beings, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. Where are all this in the story of Jesus Christ? The figure of Christ is the reversal of all the three rebellions in Genesis 1 to 11. So if we get this correctly, what Matthew is doing is he has encoded a message in the family tree of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is the Christ. He is from the line of David who defeated the last giant. He is from the line of Abraham who will defeat the rebellion that started in Babylon. And that Jesus Christ will put an end to all rebellion and restore the kingdom of God. This is the reason why when Jesus Christ came, he started announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. John would preach and be baptized. People today would preach and be Baptists. Now, that's a different thing, of course. But how is Jesus going to do it? How is Jesus going to restore the kingdom? You see, the story of David and Jonathan provides us a blueprint. Think about it. This is a beautiful story. The story of David and Jonathan gives us a blueprint on how Jesus will restore the kingdom. Because if Jesus is the new David, we are the Jonathan. Our allegiances and our loyalties should be to the one true king, that is Jesus Christ. Your loyalty should not be on the pastor of the church, so that when he resigns or he retires, we all go to the other church and follow the pastor. Our loyalty should not be on the pastor. Our loyalty should be on Jesus Christ. He's the center of everything. Jonathan's loyalty was on David because he knew David was the legitimate heir to the throne. See, in the beginning and the ending of the chapter 20, Jonathan reaffirmed his covenant with David. This is what happened here in verse 14. Jonathan said, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. But the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. That's heavy because he was talking about the enemies of David and we know that there's one enemy of David, his father. And then he said, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. 
what he's saying there, he's actually implying to say that may God takes vengeance on Saul, the enemy of David. That is his father. He made a choice. He made a choice between his father and the true king of Israel. It is not that he hates his father. It is that he recognized that there's only one true king, and that's David. You see, it's hard. It's hard to betray your blood just because you believe in the truth of this new king. This is the same thing that Jesus did when he said in verse 10, verse 37, Matthew 10, 37. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What does this mean? What this means is that our loyalty should be on Jesus Christ alone. Jesus must come first before your husband, before your wife, before your father, before your mother, before your son, before your daughter. Jesus must come first. There are only two options here. Either we deny the claim of Jesus Christ or we support and give our allegiance to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. This was his challenge in Matthew 10, verse 32. He said, So everyone who acknowledges me before of men, I will also acknowledge before my Father is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father is in heaven. Jonathan made a choice. His choice was to deny his father in lieu of God's chosen king. See, there's a term that we use here, the term friend of God. What does it mean? The term friend of God is not just a fraternal term about my relationship with God. You know, I'm close to God. We are like this. I'm his friend. No. The term friend of God refers to allegiance and loyalty. What it means that come hell or high waters, we do not cut our allegiances to God. Our loyalty must be to him first and foremost. Jesus Christ is looking for Jonathans, Jonathans who would be loyal to the very end. So if Jesus is the new David, how will he defeat the rebellion? Think about the second temptation. Matthew records this. The devil brought Jesus to the top of the mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but bow down and worship me. That was a trick. We know that. It's a trick. Jesus did not fall for the trick. He knows that. The devil is offering him the kingdom, but bypassing the glory. Well, we know it's a trick. The enemy will not simply hand over the kingdom he stole in the first place from Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3. What Satan wants for Jesus is for Jesus to bypass the cross. He doesn't want Jesus to die on the cross. What Satan wants is for Jesus to shortcut the road to glory, bypass the cross. Just, you know, take the kingdom. It's already yours. What Satan wants is for Jesus to disobey the Father and not drink the cup of suffering. What's the cup of suffering? In the Garden of Gethsemane, that was the prayer of Jesus. Lord, Father, I, can you please? I don't want to drink this, but I have to obey you. The cup of suffering. So make no mistake about it. The enemy has tempted Jesus, and this was his MO. This was his way to tempt us also. Same thing. He's offering you the kingdom privileges without the necessary trials designed to strengthen your faith. 
That's what the enemy is doing. Let me simplify this. Every time you look at Facebook and your friends and their vacation photos and the life of celebrities and the latest must-haves, the devil is offering you the keys to all the kingdoms without the suffering. Suffering is designed for us to grow our faith. So if, if Peter is, is saying that our faith is like gold, as precious as gold, then we have to go through polishing. But if we skip the polishing, then we'll be in trouble. We'll be falling in the trick of the enemy, shortcutting the road to glory by skipping trials and persecutions and suffering. No, Jesus did not fall for the trick. He knows this was just a trick. See, what the devil wants is to offer us a life of comfort at your fingertips. We are here in America. Everything is almost accessible. I mean, we can forget God if we get, this is what is happening to Filipinos who have three jobs, four jobs, and all they do is work, 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 so they can fill their bank accounts with money, 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 money. This is a trick from the enemy. This is not God's design for us. And Jesus understood that in order to defeat the rebellion, he must go through the suffering. Why do I say that? Because the cross is the only way to glory. That is God's plan for him. That is God's plan for all of us here. So that a cup that he dreaded to drink in Gethsemane, he finally drank at the cross. What did he say? I thirst. And he was offered a drink. He finally took up that suffering and accepted it. But what about the empty tomb? What does it mean? What does the resurrection exactly mean? All, all we think was, you know, the cross, Christ died for me to forgive your sin so that we can go to heaven. That's, not, that's just one side of the story. Here's another side of the story. Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It says, When I saw him, by him he meant Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I mean, Moses cannot claim this because Moses did not, you know, die and live forevermore. Lazarus cannot claim this because he did not die and live forevermore. Nobody can claim this except Jesus. I died and I am alive forevermore. But here's the thing. There's a there's the last phrase that's very interesting. And he said, I have the keys of death and Hades. What is death and Hades? What's this phrase, death and Hades, mean? Do you remember the last famous phrase of Jesus when he was in Caesarea Philippi? He said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We like that verse so much. The Catholics and the Protestants were divided in this because the Catholics say Peter is the first, is the rock because he's the first pope. He, Jesus was talking about Peter. The Protestants say, uh, the rock is the statement of Jesus Christ that upon this rock, the truth, he will build his church. We have to get away from this debate. Because what Jesus meant by the gates of hell and in this rock was literally a place upon this rock, the gates of hell. Let me show you a photo here. There's one place in Israel where you can find this cave. It's a cave in Banias where it is believed, the people believe that this is the entrance to the underworld. In other words, this is the entrance to hell. This is the gates of hell. This is where the gods go in winter and stay in winter and come out in summer. 
Baal is known to be the god of the underworld. It's still there right now. So if you go to Israel, you go to Caesarea Philippi, go to Banias, the city, you will find this cave. This cave has an inscription, a title, the gates of hell. So when Christ was here, he was telling upon this rock at the mountain, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against. He was picking a fight. He was telling the enemy, you will not win because I have now the keys to death in Hades. What does it mean? That means Jesus now has authority to whoever comes and go or enters and exit the gates of hell. He has the keys. If you are the owner of the house and you have the key, you have the authority to whoever would come and go to your house, right? Jesus now has the keys to death in Hades. So Jesus is in charge. But, where, but why is there hell in the first place? Who should be there in hell? Listen to what Jesus said. Explain it also. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he said, Then he will say to those on his left, That's one more reason to be Republican. No, it's just a joke. Calm down. Calm down. Then he will say, literally left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. Hell was originally created for the devil and his angels. What about angels? These are the angels who rebelled in Genesis chapter 6. These are the products of the Amorites, the giants who ruled the land of Canaan. Hell was meant for them, not for us, not for human beings. But you see, some member of our species, human beings, would rather decide to ally with the enemies rather than ally with Jesus Christ. See, nobody will go to hell just because you are destined to go to hell. Nobody's destined to go to hell. People will go to hell because they chose sides. They chose allegiances. They chose hell. They did not choose Christ. People will go to hell because they don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. Nobody's destined to go to hell unless you want to. This is a matter of choice. So this could be your father, your mother, your daughter, your son, your brother, your sister, your friend. Anyone can go because this is a matter of personal choice. Just as believing in Jesus is a personal choice. So if this is clear, the question is, why is the kingdom of God slowly advancing? Let me be blunt about this, and I'm going to say this with prayers and with good intentions. Some people come to Christ because of the benefits, nothing more. When they read their Bibles, they look for blessings, good life, eternal life, blessings, joy, peace. But they skip on trials, it's not mine, persecution, not me. Suffering, not me, that's just Moses and Jesus. Some people don't understand that discipleship, in discipleship, sufferings and blessings go hand in hand. If anyone wants to follow me, he must pick up his cross, deny himself daily, and follow me. That's discipleship. People have to understand that suffering is part of preservation. Following Jesus it's costly. Following Jesus might get you in trouble. But following Jesus is the right choice. Because if Peter is correct, our faith is like gold. It's, it has to be polished. Without polishing, we cannot grow and mature in faith. I'm going to say this because I love you guys. And you have friends. 
See, it's not enough for someone to say, I believe in Jesus. It's not enough for someone to go to church every Sunday. It's not enough for people to identify with Christian faith if they also continue to love the world. What do I mean by that? John chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The people calls these blessings. The Bible calls this the world. You see, if someone says, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, I, I, I think there's a disconnect in there. What do you think? Yeah? You cannot love Jesus and not love the church. When someone says, I love the church, but I don't like the fellowship in the church, there's a disconnect in there. If you love Jesus, you have to love the body of Christ. And you have to, you have to love being with the church family. Do you hear him into that? Yes? Do you love the church? Do you love being with the family? John was very explicit when he says, you've got to stay away from the world. Some people would say they love the church, but they love being with people who do unrighteousness. See, there's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. Either you are for God or against God. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about everything that Jesus claimed and stood for. And yet, some people would treat Christianity like a chore, like a checklist. You know, some Christians have a checklist. <sighs> Go to church. Christmas, check. New Year, check. My birthday, check. Oh, prayer. <clears throat> Before I eat my meal, check. When I get sick, check. If I need something from God, check. Oh, and reading my Bible. One verse a day keeps the doctor away. I mean, if Christianity is nothing but a checklist, then we have not fully understood what it means to put our loyalty in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a question before I end here. Here's the question. If we're serious about God, if we're serious about His kingdom, then we've got to ask these questions. What exactly is my role in the kingdom? What have I done lately to advance the kingdom of God? When you wake up in the morning, do you ask yourself, what am I going to do today to advance the kingdom of God? Before you sleep at night, do you ask yourself again, what am I going to do tomorrow to help out the church, to make the church grow bigger a little bit more? What can I possibly do with all my time and my resources and my skills to serve the king? Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves if we truly believe that God is king and this is his kingdom. Because at the very end of it, the sermon is not about friendship. The sermon is about Jonathan who gave his loyalty to David, the true king. This is a challenge of allegiance and service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for helping us understand this is about your kingdom. Father, forgive us that sometimes we treat going to church like a chore. Just a box on our checklist. Help us to really get to know you more so that we serve you, not just a checklist, but because we serve you, because we love you. Father, allow us also to love the church 
even though sometimes we didn't like other people we have preferences we want to be treated like special but then the Bible said that you died for everyone in the church and therefore we have to love everyone in the church father we confess today that as we love you we will try our best to love the church and everyone 